Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. My name is Jeff and I am one of the leaders here at the church and I want to thank you all for coming, and I would ask you to turn your attention with me as we go to our Bible study time now, to your Bibles, and if you uh, know where Second Peter is, Second Peter, and I'll help you get there. If you're new to studying your Bible, know this, that the Bible is broken into two big chunks. There's an Old Testament chunk in the front, and then an, a New Testament chunk in the, in the back. Um, Second Peter is way towards the back, towards that book of Revelation that you've heard all your friends talk about, right? So towards the back of the Bible is Second Peter. And I'm going to read a portion out of Second Peter chapter 1. So if you want to turn there, if you want to use the Bible underneath the seat close to you, you can turn to page 1018. Underneath the seat, there's a hardback black Bible, and you can turn to page 1018 there. I want you to pick up on something that I just picked up on during my study this week. Uh, as I desire to teach, um, I think, encouraging words from Peter in Second Peter, towards the end of the Bible, I'm reminded of the beginning of the Bible when everything was just as God intended it to be. So we read in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created everything. That out of nothing, ex nihilo, the Bible tells us, God spoke into existence everything that is, including mankind. And, and, and then God says these words, that everything that he created was very good. Which we might argue is probably the understatement of eternity, yes? I've had burritos that are very good. <laughs> right? He created everything that exists, including us. And he calls it very, very good. Until a moment comes when mankind disobeyed God and sin entered the world. And, and on the heels of sin came death. Did you know there was no death before Adam and Eve disobeyed God? Did you know that? And the first death that actually occurs is when God sacrifices an animal and uses the skin of that sacrificial animal to cover the shame, the sorrow, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. But in this moment of disobedience, a chasm of sorts erupted out of the ground of the earth, both naturally and spiritually, that mankind has been separated from God. God banishes Adam and Eve out of this place called the Garden of Eden banishes them away, curses the earth that we live in. But before he does all of that, he makes a promise to both the earth and to us as mankind. He says that one day he will send a restorer, a redeemer, a seed of a woman, a man will come and he will bring back all that was lost in that disobedience. Now that's a very hopeful thing for us to understand. And we read that through the, all the pages of Scripture and all of the Old Testament. We see how God is laying into effect this plan of His. 
This desire to bring people back to himself. This desire to reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth. That yes, the earth is broken. Yes, the world seems to operate on its own devices now. But God has this insatiable desire to call it back to himself. And he does that work through Jesus Christ. Yes? Now, I'll be very honest. You guys made a lot of noise for Joe getting parking tickets. But when I said the word Jesus, nobody said anything. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) What God is going to do and is already done and is continuing to do, I should say, is do this work on the earth and in our lives through Jesus Christ. That he desires to change us and transform us. And he is using Jesus to establish his kingdom here on the earth. Peter is a man who understands a life that's been changed, a life that's been transformed. And we'll get to him in a minute. But I want to read this passage. It's chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll read it in its entirety. And then I want to pray for us. I'm earnestly seeking that God would open eyes. I prayed these words, God, remove the scales from our eyes, things that have literally blinded us from the reality of who we are in Christ Jesus. If you're waiting around for another plan, if you're waiting for God to send another savior, another redeemer, another option for you, you're, you're going to wait forever. There is no other plan. It is Jesus Christ. So anyways, I get real excited. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We will put the words up on the screen. You can follow along there. This is a letter written by Simeon Peter. He says right here, verse 1, a servant and an apostle to Jesus Christ. To those, he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He's writing to Christians, just so we know. He's writing to those of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he prays, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power, his divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire oh that we might escape the corruption of this world for in the, for for this very reason peter continues Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Ah, that's good. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, here it is, that he is blind, somehow having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, he says, brothers, listen, be all the more diligent to conform your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Oh, if you underline anything in your Bibles, underline that. If you don't want to fall, go back up a few verses and read what Peter's telling us that we must be diligent towards. For in this way, he says, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's almost as if Peter's saying that God has richly provided for us an entrance into what what once was. Almost the place where God dwells, the, the Garden of Eden of sorts, the place where all is right in the world, yes? And, and I, I'm going to argue this point later, but i just go ahead and push it across the table now. If you believe that you have to wait to die to get there, you have been misinformed. You've been lied to. I don't know how else to say it. Someone distorted the good news of Jesus Christ and says that one day when you die, you get all the good stuff that is somehow promised by Jesus in the New Testament to have now. And I would argue that Peter is making a way for us to understand that. To be very honest, I feel a little bit froggy today. It's going to get crazy. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? I blame you, Steve. It's, it's your fault right here. Can I just do something? I never do this. Steve and Linda home. Um, if you have, if you ever question my theology, you blame these two people right here. <laughs> Steve taught me more than I ever wanted to know about Jesus and the Bible and everything. And they have blessed us by coming here. I did not know you were coming. Um, well, uh, Pastor Appreciation, I appreciate you so very much, both of you. Thank you for your um, training me up and, and leading me, even when I didn't do it well. You still believed in me, but thank you for coming. So would you give them a hand real quick? And this is a big deal. I never do this, by the way. You guys are awesome, really awesome. So let's pray. Father, I don't want to be blind. I don't want to be blind to the reality that you have come to change and transform us, that you have made a way through your son, Jesus, that we can live a life of godliness. Peter says it here, and there's, there's a way to do it. And I hope that we see it, God. Help us to see that. As I prayed earlier today, that scales be removed, that we would be able to see what you have available to us. God, we thank you for everything that you do for us. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you have your way with us today, that you would um, convince us of our wrong ways, that you would help us to understand, that you would give us a knowledge that even supersedes our understanding of who you are. God, we thank you for everything that you do, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When, when I think of a man or a person whose life has been transformed, I, I almost always think of Peter. You know, a lot of churches give Peter a hard time. I've probably been one of those preachers who sort of make fun of Peter for being a little too rambunctious. And, and in fact, if you remember the story, one time he actually, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has to call Peter out and calls him Satan, right? And he says, listen, bro, get behind me. I lead the charge here. This is Jesus calling Peter. I says, no, you get behind me, Satan, because I'm doing what I want to do, not what you want to do. And so Peter is this, this guy who's just kind of wild and crazy, and God has so transformed his life. In fact, I think Peter wants us to understand this. When he opens this letter to fellow believers, he uses his name, both names, Simon Peter. See, when Simon, who, whose brother Andrew had first met Jesus, Simon is brought to Jesus through Andrew. And when he comes to him, he says, hey, this is my brother Simon. And Jesus says, not anymore. From now on, I'm going to call you Peter. And if you know the story, Peter just means the rock. You're going to be called a man of rock. It just means a stick to a fortitude, a deep-seated conviction in his understanding of who God is. But he didn't 
automatically become that. If you read the gospels, Peter is all over the place with God. He's rebuking Jesus sometimes. Jesus has to rebuke him back and all over the place. But eventually he becomes a a rock in the church. We see God transform this wild and crazy guy, right, into the rock that God wants to use to establish his church. Simon, Peter, is an example of a transformed life. All my growing up, I had nicknames. I won't tell you what they were. But when I became a Christian, not on purpose did I stop using them, but I just, I remind myself that I don't really go by those nicknames anymore because I'm really not that person that I used to be. Anyone else understand this? In fact, I have a very good friend who had a nickname and he asked his teachers to call him that nickname. This nickname was his name until he became a Christian. And he says, I would prefer no one to call me by my nickname anymore. I really want to be called by my name that my mom and dad gave me, which I think is just really great. But Simon is this person who's changed into Peter. And this transformed life should be an example for us. And he takes these words, I, Simon Peter, I'm a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, let me talk about apostle real quick. Apostle just means a sent one, one with authority, one given a message and is told to go establish something new. So Peter for sure is an apostle. I mean, if you know the story on the sec, on, in the second chapter of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and fell on the disciples, Peter's the one who stood up and addressed the crowds. And 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus when he preached. He for sure is an apostle. Make no question, our gospel of Mark, written by John Mark, most scholars agree, was actually told to Mark by Peter. Peter says, this is what we did when Jesus and I used to run together. This is what we used to do when Jesus and I used to run together. And he told the stories to Mark, and Mark wrote them down. We have our first gospel that was ever penned. He for sure was an apostle. But he's telling us he's also first a servant to God. Simon Peter, a man transformed and changed. I am a servant first and an apostle second. I think word order matters here. I think he's intentionally telling us something. That Peter, before he could become an apostle, had to learn to serve first. I'll argue this. Before you and I could ever be expected to do something great for God, we must first learn to do the, the menial things for God. We must first learn to serve who God is. The problem is most of us don't want to do those things, that we think somehow that they're beneath us, don't we? I don't want to do the serving. I want to do the big things. I want to do the leading. Okay, Peter, calm down, (laughs) right? I think we need to understand that there's no job or menial task to below us. May I remind you of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, who left the riches of heaven put on skin, flesh, came to earth to die upon a cross, at one point washed his own disciples' feet. If there's no task beneath him, how could we possibly say there's a task beneath us? I have a subscription to Forbes. Not on purpose. It just shows up in my mailbox. (laughs) I have no idea. Literally, it is not even my name on the address label, but it is my address. So I just assume God did it and is playing a joke on me. So if your name's Caroline something, I have your magazine. (laughs) Anyways, I'm looking through Forbes who just dropped the 400 richest billionaires in the world. Um, And I'm going through that. Just so you know, that's sick money. That's ridiculous. That's almost gross money at that point, the amount of money some of these people have. Because I'm flipping through the pages thinking about the words of Peter who says he's a servant before he became an apostle. I see the story of a man, um, Matt Thornton III, I believe, 
Uh, he's the highest ranking African-American executive in the FedEx Corporation. And when he went to work for them, when he first tried to get a job with them right out of college, they said, the only job we have available for you is, is sweeping the floors between 3 and 7 a.m., just assuming he'd walk out. He says, I'll take it. 20 years later, he's the COO, again, the highest ranking African-American in FedEx's organization. So he understood something that you and I maybe miss. We want the big, great things, but I'm telling you, we have to start small in some things. I Honestly, I, I didn't intend to labor in this for a moment, but I just feel like maybe this is important for some people to hear. Can I tell you something, not to be braggardly, but... On any given week, you'll see any of the pastors on this church, in this church, carrying the trash out, cleaning the toilets. I clean the toilets every day, Joe, seriously, every day. <laughs> Go see the doctor, bro. <laughs> I'm, I'm always wiping down something because it just grosses me out. There, there's just this willingness if we, if we serve others, if we serve the Lord, then he can exalt us into higher forms of leadership. And we see this in, in Peter's life. And I'll move on. I have a lot to cover and I only have 50 more minutes. And um, <laughs> he says, to those of you who have attained, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, he's writing to Christians. And there's some thought that maybe the apostles who are elevated in status are somehow greater than them. And he's, he's just quickly lowering the bar. He goes, no, you don't understand. Through Jesus Christ, we're all the same. We truly are. In fact, we can read these words. These words weren't penned to us, but we can read them now. And we can, we can account ourselves equal with Peter as well. We can account ourselves equal to many of the martyrs and other Christians who have gone before us, the other pastors and great theologians who have gone before us. God sees us as equal as, as them. And we're equal by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was talking to a friend of mine even before I walked up here. This is a point most missed in, in Christendom, in our faith, that our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ alone. Our rightness, righteousness, comes from Jesus. It is, in fact, not from us. So for those of you who have been misinformed that somehow you have to labor towards um, God accepting you, that you have to labor towards working into your salvation, that somehow you have to take the works of Jesus Christ and add to it a bunch of other things. Stop believing that, that our righteousness is imputed to us through Jesus Christ alone. And because of that, we're all the same. The... Uh, <clears throat> The stepchild to that thinking is when people begin to look down on other people. Because look at all the stuff that I do. Look how great I am. Have you seen my church attendance? You seen it? You seen my giving records? You seen all the stuff I do? I serve every other weekend, kids. You? Seriously, you guys serve over there? 200 children every week go through the kids department. We could use some help. Just saying. <laughs> but we begin to look at other people. And we go, well, they don't do as much as I do, so they're less than me. And Peter goes, hogwash. So our righteousness, our standing before God, listen, and others should be found in Jesus alone. You have, you have trouble finding worth in someone else? <laughs> then read John 3.16 again. It says, God so loved that person, the world, that he gave Jesus for them. You don't love them? Then you're out of step with what God wants. Yes? yes. That our righteousness comes from God alone. 
And he prays for them and for us. May we hear this. May grace and peace be multiplied to us. Grace and peace. Again, I think, I think word order matters here. That until we fully understand the grace, the undeserved, the unmerited blessing or favor that God would give us through his son, Jesus Christ, we will never into, enter into the peace that he has made available to us. If we, if we at all think it's something we work for, something we strive for, something we have to exercise out of our own sweaty brow, we'll never enter into the peace, the shalom, the rest that God has for us. May grace and peace be multiplied to us. When you understand grace and know it more and more and more and, that, and it grows in your life, the peace of God will continue to grow in your life. Jesus, free people from this thinking today, Jesus. There's no way Jesus came to die upon a cross that you and I might have to work for our salvation again. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. This is an experiential knowledge. This is not just head knowledge. This is not scholarly knowledge. This is an experiential knowledge. He says you are to experience the grace that God has given you. You're to experience the peace that God has given you. And once you experience God, you begin to have these things multiplied in your life. And from here on, Peter begins to talk about this dualistic nature of how God transforms and changes his people. So I just need you to look at me just for a second, right? If you're one of those people on the earth that you believe and want to be changed and transformed by God, then for the next few minutes, just pay attention to what Peter says. Because he's showing us the example. He's given us the, the roadmap to be transformed and changed by God himself. He says, number one, the, the one prong is this. It's by his divine power, verse three. That it is by the power of God himself, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, the godly life has been granted to us. Say, say this with me, all things, all things. Has God shortchanged us? Is there any treasure we need to go out and find in the world to find a life of godliness? The answer is no. God has given to us all things. And how has he done it? By his divine power. He's given this to us through the knowledge of Jesus, of him who called to us his own glory and excellence, verse four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, before we go Mormon theology here, which I rebuke Mormon theology, we do not become gods, but we can become so godlike that people would begin to see God in us. That sounds strange. But when we read the Bible and says that God made us in his image, in his likeness, he created us. He, in fact, desires us to look a whole lot like him. So for Peter to take this passage and say that we could have a divine nature about ourselves. Again, we're not gods. We would never even pretend to be gods. That's silly. But we could so much look like him, the people around us would wonder how we became that way. That our life would be so changed and transformed, people would begin to ask questions. How did you get that way? We have such a nature that looks divine. 
For this reason, he says, and here's the second approach that I think God uses to change and transform us. Number one, by his divine power. Number two, right, that we would make every effort to supplement our faith. On the heels of me just telling you that it's not our works that do anything for our salvation, Peter then lays before us a whole bunch of stuff that we should probably supplement our faith with. There's maybe a small distinction I could just add to this to maybe push off some confusion. These things that Peter would want us to supplement our faith with, they come from an understanding of our righteousness that is found in Christ first. And we supplement that faith of this understanding by doing these things so that by doing these things, God could change and transform us. We do not do these things hoping to march towards a righteousness that we'll never attain. You see, we march from a place of righteousness. Just nod at me and I'll move on. Are we catching some of this? And Peter understands that. We're all equals, righteous in Christ. And now he says for transformation to truly undertake root in our lives, we need to do some things. We need to add to the faith of understanding what that is, a couple of these things. The first one he says is virtue. Virtue is not a word we probably use every day. How about this moral goodness? How about just morality? Morality could just be defined as this. It's just, it's, it's the set of beliefs that you have to determine whether or not you can do something, whether something's right or wrong in your world. And would you agree with me that people have different morals in this world? Would you agree with me? People probably have different morals in this room. Scary thought. And I want you to know that there are many things that can inform our morality. Um, they could be politics, a political ideology. Um, if you're one of those people, I just warn you, <laughs> right? At one point, your, your political party is going to ask you to betray a command of God, and you have to make a decision. <laughs> it, it could be science. It could be a philosophy. It could be something else. What Peter is saying, we need to add to our faith, right, the, the rootedness of Jesus Christ in our lives, a, a morality compass, a virtuous living, a virtue that's based on this stuff. I love what Peter says, because if we just try to understand grace through faith, we just try to have a knowledge of that, I think we'll miss the experiences that God has for us. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives a couple examples of what it looks like to live a moral life that more aligns itself with the commands of Scripture and of Christ than maybe what the world would say. And Jesus says some words like this, love your enemies, We've been talking a little bit about love these last few weeks, loving God, loving others like your neighbor. And then last week we talked about loving our enemies. And Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies. That's a whole different set of morals than the world was living by at the time. But by faith in Christ, then God gives us a, uh, uh, a quiz, a litmus test, a chance to go prove it. He says, okay, you have faith in me. You believe in me. That's fine. Now go love your enemies. And if you stop short of doing that, the question is whether or not you've truly accepted Christ or not. And in fact, Jesus goes on right after he teaches his disciples to pray, right? That the Lord's prayer that everyone sort of memorizes into King James back in the day, right? That whole thing. At the end of the Lord's prayer, Jesus adds this, and then help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us, right? And then he says these words, he goes, and if we don't forgive them, you won't forgive us. God is commanding us to forgive other people. And if we don't, he says, I won't forgive you. What? How does that work? 
What he's saying is, if you, if you can't muster within you through the love of Christ, by grace through faith, to forgive others, then it's possible you don't even have salvation. So stop walking around like you're saved when uh, 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 you're not. You're not. What you have is a whole lot of, what you have is a whole lot of religion. What you have is a whole lot of do's and don'ts that somehow trickle down to you from grandma, grandpa, mom, and dad. I don't know where they came from. Bad Bible teachers, possibly. Through guilt and shame, you've been added a, a, a heavy armor that you're to, to bear. And, and that's not what this is about. So when, when Christ commands us, and their commands, just so you know, to love our enemies, we get to prove our salvation. When he commands us to forgive others, we prove our salvation in them. And if you don't like those words, sorry about you. If this doesn't hurt, sometimes you're reading it wrong. And we have this morality or virtue, and we can add to this virtue knowledge. Again, experiential knowledge. This is that example. Love your enemies. Forgive others. Do these things. Experience it. And, and once you understand it and how God responds in that, that knowledge then grows. And he says, and from that knowledge, you can add to your life self-control. Oh, my goodness. Self-control. This isn't an official poll, but anybody lack self-control this week? Me and Terry? <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, if I want to get to this place, I, I add to my faith in Christ a little morality, a little virtuous living, the experiential knowledge of God, and eventually I begin to understand self-control. Now, before we begin to think that this is just white-knuckling and just willing and determining our lives, understand what, what Peter's saying. He's saying the new self that is inside you in Christ begins to control you. Hear that? It's the new person, the new person in Christ inside of us begins to control what our lives look like. No longer do we desire those things that we know are bad for us and cause guilt and shame and condemnation to come upon us. We begin to self-choose by the newness of Christ things that honor God, things that are righteous, things that are good and godly. That's what self-control looks like. And he adds to that, once you get self-control, you'll get steadfastness. Steadfastness is just this. It's self-control over time. Over time. A momentary victory in your life becomes a life of victory in your life. I sound like a preacher from Texas when I say victory. <laughs> I'll mention no names, so I'm just saying. <laughs> but that's, oh, yeah. Is he still around? I have no idea. Anyways, um, Where was I? Yes, steadfastness. It's, it's a victorious living time and time again. You begin to live the life that God has for us and wants for us. Steadfastness is the step before godliness when we're really understanding it. The issue with steadfastness is it can seem, seem so far. It seems so like I'm... I'm, I'm over the hill now. I say that out loud. And um, I, my brother-in-law just turned 50, and we really made fun of him at his birthday this week. And, you know, over the hill for sure and, and all of that. But I'd be very honest with you. I still have a lot of life to live. Old people, a lot of life to live, yes. 
Amen. Yes. And uh, it still feels almost impossible for me to do this. It feels like, what's that saying? Journey of a thousand miles just begins with a single step. Is this what Jesus was maybe alluding to when he says um, to not be anxious or to worry about tomorrow, but just to sort of let tomorrow worry about itself, just to focus right here? Maybe that's that idea, the journey of this thousand miles, the rest of my life towards righteousness and godly living. I'm not even going to focus on that. I'm just focusing on this. And I, I, I beat back that sin in my life today, and I'll accept it and claim it, and then tomorrow I'll work on tomorrow. And I continue. Um, people who are in recovery understand this. Amen. They understand this. Um, and I think we would do well to have an understanding of that too. Anyways, uh, we have godliness. Godliness leads to these last two things, brotherly affection and love, which I would argue are the pinnacle characteristics of Jesus Christ. Brotherly affection, caring for the other person's needs even more than your own. He's willing to die for others, right? Lay down his life for others. And the ultimate characteristic of all of this godly living is love. It truly is. Um, uh, we were praying this morning before I came out here, and someone came to me and said, uh, I'm trying to be very cryptic. <laughs> it wasn't Joe. I'll just say that. Uh, came and says, hey, somebody said something about uh, Renaissance. They, they just preach love there right? Love, love. I'm like, thanks for the compliment, bro. I'm just saying, because doesn't John tell us that God is love? <laughs> like if we're preaching love, I think that's good. And I think Peter would even agree with us that the, the primary characteristic of our life, the ultimate characteristic of our life should be the love for who? For God and for others. In fact, Jesus summarizes all of the law into those things to love God with everything and to love others. So, yes, we do preach love. Take that. <laughs> for if these qualities, verse 8, for if they are yours and if they are increasing, we should see this growing of these qualities in our life. They will keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful. Ineffective. Your Christian life, if you're a Christian, welcome. Your Christian life has a purpose. God has laid into it a purpose. And you are to be effective for his ministry on the earth. That's the desire. And if we lack these qualities or if they are not increasing in our lives, he is saying we are being ineffective to what he's called us to do. He also uses the language unfruitful. And if you know the story of the vine dresser in John's gospel, Matthew says these words. It's John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 and some other stuff. But he says, he says that my, I'm the vine, my father is the vine dresser. And in verse 2, it says that if, if there's any branch attached to the vine that does not bear fruit, he says the vine dresser, my father God, will cut it off and cast it away. If these things are not growing in our lives, we have the risk, uh, hear me, of, of being cast away, which I would argue just means we were never grafted into the vine in the first place. Just throw that out there. This is the litmus test for our life. But he does continue to say, Jesus continues to say in John 15, chapter 2, uh, chapter 15, verse 2, he says, but those branches that do bear fruit, the vine dresser will come and prune those so that you'd be more fruitful. God intends for us to be more fruitful. 
That's what he wants for our lives, for our lives to look more and more like these characteristics here. He goes, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. This is what I was praying for this morning, that our, our eyesight would be restored. And how do we see again? We have to remember that he has cleansed us from our former sins. See, we become so blinded because we have forgotten that the righteousness that is available to us in Christ has been secured for us and is settled. It, there's no longer any punishment. There's no longer any judgment due us because Christ has absorbed that punishment for us. See, we become blind to this reality when we lose sight of that and we start to work towards our own salvation again. And we're just building up another gospel to try to carry around. When Jesus, the words of our Lord and Savior says that my burden is light, my yoke is easy, he says. My teachings, my understanding is easy for you to carry. You want to go out and build your own theology? You want to go out and build your own gospel? Good luck to you, he says. I think it'll smother you. In fact, I'll just pause right here. I think that might be this very issue for some of us in the room. Is that you've been smothered by something that is in fact not godly. It's godlike. It has the language, the vernacular, the sort of smell and taste of the true gospel, but it's a false gospel. See, these things lift us out of our former lives and pull us into the new life. There's a change and a transformation available to us. If the changes and transformations aren't happening to us, I wonder if you and I have attached a false gospel to us. Oh, that I might have more time with you this morning. I would love to confess a lot of things to you from my own life. I would love to tell you that, um, that my life oftentimes doesn't look like this. <laughs> I was joking before I walked up here that I have to go up here and pretend to have it all together when in fact I do not have it all together. And I can lose sight of, of what Christ has done for me and, and what he has settled for me in righteousness. I can lose sight of that if I have a fear of how you guys would perceive me and I try to work towards being right in front of all of you. This is what, I, what Jesus addresses the Pharisees about. He says, you guys do a pretty great job washing the outside of your dishes and they look great in the cupboard, but as soon as company comes over, you ever pull a cup out of the thing to give a, someone a glass of water, and the dishwasher did that thing where it threw up inside of it? <laughs> and your teenage daughter didn't pay any attention, just stuck it up in there to bake in the noonday sun, <laughs> so you can't even scrub it out. Those cups, for the record, trash. I just throw them away. I don't even mess with it. But Jesus says you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is, is filled with all kinds of grody things. And see, I could stand here trying to polish, 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 and try to present, present, present myself as a man who has it all together, when the best thing for all of you to understand is I do not have it all together. But I look back to this righteousness in Christ. 
James, the brother of Jesus, says that when we confess our sins to one another, that's why I think church is so helpful. People who do online church, I think, miss that a little bit. I think there's just a real relationship that is necessary between believers to encourage one another and to help one another, that we have to confess to one another. So I have 20 seconds left and about 17 more verses. I have no idea. So we're going to go ahead and pull the cord on it right here. I have no idea. Um, I was unsettled this week because I've been missing real change in my life. I I, um, was in Chicago this past week. Um, I was very hungry. They call that hangry, right? And I was running an errand for some other people. And when I came back onto the highway there, I cut somebody off unintentionally. I wasn't even driving my own truck, you know, so it's kind of weird how you have to drive someone else's car. So I didn't mean to. And, And the person let me know that I had cut them off. And as God is my witness, I could not make my middle finger long enough. (laughs) To let them know that I was upset with that. And in fact, when we both got to a stoplight, I almost jumped out and said, tap, tap, you have my attention now. Is there something you would like to say? And all the while, I'm thinking to myself, I'm in Chicago. Nobody knows me up here. Nobody knows me. I can do this up here. And then I'm like, no, I can't. This, this virtuous, I mean, supplement to your faith, Peter says, virtue. <laughs> Back to square one for Jeff again. But see, isn't that part of our lives? See, I've overcome addictions in my life. I've walked through those quote unquote steps, if you will, that Peter's laying out here. And I I have a godly understanding of addiction in my life. I don't have the addiction anymore. But anger is still something else. And so God gives me an opportunity to experience his grace and his peace through the righteousness in Christ all over again. And I just begin to add to that virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly love, brotherly affection, then love. I begin to walk that out in that area of my life. And then we go on to the next thing and the next thing. And for the, for the rest of my days, this is what my life looks like before the Lord. To be very honest, it's what your days are going to look like too. You just do a better job of hiding it, I guess. So, I just want to pray for us. Would you bow your heads? Um, God, I'm, I apologize if I didn't say what you wanted me to say. Got to thank you for our time together and I just pray, Lord, that we really begin to understand your Holy Spirit. Who Jesus calls a comforter, a counselor. Uh, the, The word is paraclete, which just means one who's been called alongside us to help us. God, when we when we feel lost, when we feel like we're failing at this 
godly living thing? We feel like we're failing at this living out the Christian life thing. It, it, it's like we've been trained to petition a faraway God. If we just pray loud enough, long enough, if we, if we fast long enough in the right things, if we discipline our lives enough, then you'll hear us and move in our life situation. And, and yet Jesus says that I've given you someone. The Holy Spirit, who in fact is not just alongside us, but indwells inside of us. So Holy Spirit, I pray that the reality and our understanding of your nearness, maybe that's all what today is for, is that your nearness would be made visible to us. That we do not petition a God who is far away and unable to hear or help, but the Holy Spirit, who is the very spirit of God himself, indwells inside of us. And so when we need help in these areas, you are there to help us. God, I thank you for our time today. I pray out of all of this that your son Jesus is glorified. That I pray that that Jesus' name was exalted in this place, that Jesus would be famous here, that I, I just pray for that. And may we be, um, may we never turn from being a people who, who love to exalt Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your righteousness given to us. And Holy Spirit, help us to walk out in that. And we pray, praise you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.